So I was asked to um, um, expand on the small quote I gave yesterday about Dhammas converge upon feeling. And it comes from a sutta in the Numerical Discourses, Book of the Tens, number 58. And to just uh, get to the heart of what what was said, the Buddha says, all things, all dhammas, I'll use the word dhammas here, all dhammas are rooted in desire. They are come into being through attention. They originate from contact. They converge upon feeling. They're headed by concentration. Mindfulness exercises authority over them. Wisdom is their supervisor. Liberation is their core. They culminate in the deathless. Their consummation is Nibbana. <coughs> Take it through one more time. And uh, all Dhammas are rooted in desire, chanda, motivation, intent, interest. So it's neither necessarily good or bad. They come into being, they're born through attention. They originate, they come welling up, samudaya, from contact. They converge upon feeling. All dhammas are headed by concentration. Mindfulness has authority over them. Wisdom is their supervisor. Liberation is their core. They culminate in the deathless. Their consummation is Nibbana. So, probably the venerable listeners were suitably blown out of the water by that one. (laughs) You know, you get so far and then it... Where'd that go? Because we all know about feeling. (laughs) But it doesn't seem to end in Nibbana. people. So dhammas, so just to reiterate that, dhammas, this, this word you see in, in English, it's um, written with a, either a small d or a capital D. And of course in the Pali it doesn't have small or capital, so it's all the same. So interesting, so what's the connection between dhammas and the dhamma? Dhammas are moments direct experience, the immediate moment when something is directly touched, you know, it hits the citta. And of course the Dhamma, the Buddha's Dhamma, is, it, it, all Dhammas have a potential for a kind of creative quality. When something touches the citta, there's a rising up. So there's, all Dhammas in a way touch human nature. Yeah. It's that which touches human nature, the citta. And the Dhamma is that which which lands in the citta and has the potential to generate teachings, truth, realization. So, so it's Dhamma. The root word meaning of it is a. It's translated as things, which is about as neutral as you can get. It's not certainly not neutral. It's a quality which touches the citta, causes an effect has a creative potential in it and tends to generate qualities or the citta generates qualities because of that touch. Mm. So there are skillful dhammas, something lands on the citta, activates skillful mindsets, skillful intentions, skillful um, motivations, skillful stuff. Or, or Dhamma lands on the jitta and generates unskillful. When we say skillful and unskillful, the word is exactly that, uh, meaning 
Some things aren't that bad, but they just don't go anywhere that useful. They're not ethically wrong, they're just, so what, you know? Or they go the wrong way. They're not ethically evil, but they're pointless, or they've limited per limited uh, value. Mm. Other things are skillful and have great value, long-term value. Mm. And the but the consummation of dhammas means neither skillful nor unskillful. It's just that they cease. Jitter is still. So all our skillful dhammas, the most skillful, the most purposeful uh, value is to incline and foster a quality whereby experience can happen without there being a, a kind of you know, reactive or, or have something to have to do. They can just land and dissolve mm. until, in fact, the mind begins to, chitta begins to just to know itself, to know its own awareness and abide in that. And this is one way in which one might loosely um, refer to Nibbāna. It's just, it's, it's with itself. It's abiding in its own stillness, beauty, openness, stability. And stuff, doesn't, it's not interested in stuff. Mm. That's that's a that's a you know that's a big thing. Yeah. Mm. And one must be eternally grateful for the Buddha, who definitely, clearly could have just stayed there, <laughs> to actually just incline towards uh, the welfare of others, to allow his jitta to resonate with skillful intentions for the welfare of others. We didn't need to personally. No. So to go back to that trajectory again, things are how do how do uh, what things rooted in our chanda, our looking for something, good, bad, skillful, unskillful teachings, banana cake or something, whatever it is. And not necessarily evil, but well, how far is that going to go? <laughs> so you know that chanda, and there's, there's dhamma chanda, which is a thirst, an interest, the motivation towards teachings and practice, which is, you know, a, a, a skillful. So desire, in this sense, is not something we dismiss, or in fact can dismiss, because until there's deep realization, you're bound to have that motivation for your own welfare. So, you know, why not? <laughs> but with one who begins to understand a little more, you begin to be a bit more wary or conscious of where one's own welfare really could be found. Yeah, yeah that's okay, but how far does that go? That was kind of nice, but well, then it ended and so what, you know? Uh, and then you, which one? Oh, this takes a lot further, that one. That one started out good, but didn't go very. We're actually sour. <laughs> yeah, it's always or got addicted or something like that. So we begin to be more choosy, and our our chanda gets shifted, starts to change, just through recognizing what painful feeling, <coughs> agreeable feeling. The, term, the rapid termination of pleasant feeling. Well, that was so exciting and boom, gone. Well, that didn't go very far, did it? Mm. Not that it wasn't pleasant, but it was pretty short-lived. Mm. So just by recognizing all dhammas converge upon feeling, this is the, they have to come through this place in our, in our citta. And you stay at that place and just, you know, just be savvy you know how far is this going and that was nice but then it's over and yeah uh, how long is that going to last and you start to reckon well there are more long lasting ones pleasant ones and you begin to recognize just through adding up the results 
that um, the world of sense contact is a very limited uh, duration of pleasure and actually subject to considerable amounts of displeasure and who wants that? <laughs> yeah. But we've got these forms that definitely are in the realm of sense contact so that has to be managed and handled the, the feelings that arise and that definitely have to be understood. Mm. No. So just, okay, feeling is to be understood, to be noticed, not to be dismissed, not to be, you know, immediately gone into and grabbed and seized, but to be scrutinized with mindfulness and where's this going? And what trajectory does this, does this bring up? Then this uh, quality of attention, that faculty, manasikara, is, uh, makes that, you know, when we're searching for something, naturally, we focus on something. What about that? What about that? What about that? So that's an also part of what happens, isn't it? Where that something is a you know, sound or a sight or a big thing like a, you know, a property or a person or a job, this one is going to, you know, come up with what I would, my welfare. And again, we're not that stupid. Generally find something after a little bit of pain, pain, pain. <laughs> Shortly of pleasure. I oh, forget that one. Okay, just try this. And you say, yeah, this one's going a bit further. Uh, you look what takes you a bit further along, along the line of your welfare. Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, with that, just giving attention, you recognize, well, actually, uh, what really improves what matters a lot more is if I begin to be more attentive to what's happening in my own heart and mind. Because <laughs> not only does that remind me of where the pain and pleasure will have to, have to arrive, but also it does show me uh, a little bit more about being wary and care- careful about my desire, where that goes, you know. I know it can go, any, you know, quite a few places that don't go very far. So we're just more, this is called restraint. Once we begin to exercise restraint over the senses, just recognizing that they're, they're dangerous. Yeah, and it's not to be puritanical about it, it's just to recognize, yeah, you know, we kill, people kill each other for this stuff. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And... Uh, People get addicted through this stuff and wreck their lives through this stuff. People sexually abuse each other over this stuff. People steal over this stuff. You know, it's... Uh, and we are humans, and so we, have, we all have the potential to do that. So, some restraint uh, with that. Actually, where does it all land anyway? It lands here, in this heart-mind, why don't I focus on that a bit more fully? Hmm? And so we maybe start to meditate, or look inward, or examine, or consider. Hmm. Yeah, because that's where the energies rise from that throw me into this, that, and the other. And that's where the interest, the motivation arises from, that place. So if I get that somewhere lined up, cleared, then things are going to go a lot better. Hmm? Come, dhammas come welling up from contact. Something touches, and there's a welling up of creative potentials, sankara, for good or for bad, compulsive, habitual, or ah, that's a bit wiser. You know, the response to towards. You know, generosity or kindness or goodwill or compassion is a lot. It takes me a lot longer down a better road to more fulfillment than this one. You know, towards getting my own way, being in charge of something, having a lot of this, that, or the other. It gives me more, and it's a different kind of pleasure. So, scrutinizing what wells up out of contact 
and recognizing, well, we begin to see the ref- contact just which is a little more supervised by wisdom is going to, uh, we, we say, where do we place our attention? Restraint over the sense faculties, restraint over one's impulsiveness, and, hmm, okay, yeah, that takes a bit further because now the really important thing with that shift towards appreciating and valuing the results of restraint is that a big turnaround from the world of outgoing to the world, which is exciting but a short-lived duration and pleasure and bound to be accompanied by pain and loss and separation into oh, this place, the heart, where there's a possibility for long-term uh, fruitions that have a different kind of pleasure to them, more kind of softer, more expansive, uh, more enriching, and also that can be shared. There's no competition. Oh, that makes life a lot easier, doesn't it? Yes, we have a competition who's the most compassionate person in the room. Could be a bit tricky. But if you're really compassionate, we say, well, you are. (laughs) 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 If it makes you feel better. (laughs) So, you know, this turning, because we, these, then it's still stuff comes rising up. It's more like the in interest in helping, in being of service, of support, you know, and we get joy in it. It's not like, oh, what a pain, I've got to be compassionate. Well, no, that's not it. Because <laughs> you witness, if you really stay in your heart and don't worry about the results, which is where the good intention person sometimes naturally you know, gets, uh, makes mistakes or, or um, um, gets tra- trapped. It's, well, I've been compassionate and still, the world is still a mess, you know. Well, it could have been worse if you didn't, if you didn't exercise compassion <laughs> and kindness. And your world would have been a lot worse. <laughs> so you start to think, it doesn't really matter. Well, it does, but on on certain level, there's a sense of well, I'm you know the, the quality of good intention has a lovely effect on the heart. Quality of skillful intention has a lovely effect on the heart. The feeling of skillful intention is a gentle pleasure to it, and a sustainable one because it, intention is something you can always trigger wherever you are. Sitting quietly on your own, you can still generate uh, a skillful source of pleasure and comfort. Mm. So, all dhammas. Uh, so, out of this, just by recognizing pleasure and pain, where they are. Converge upon feeling, that's the gate through which all input-output must travel. It's the only thing we learn from, fundamentally. Mm. Headed by concentration, this means that an unskillful or a skillful dharma, at the moment when there's a decisive engagement, there's a fixation on it. So this isn't samasamadhi that's been talked about, it's just could be in a skillful state, but an unskillful state, unskillful dhamma, that moment when that particular purpose to kill, to steal, to take something just grabs and you're just there with that. Yeah. And I imagine if you're in a battlefield, that's the kind of thing that happens. You just fixate upon this one aim. Yeah. That, that's a, there's a concentration there. Climbing a mountain, you fixate upon that particular where you're going. So the skillful, uh, unskillful, and the skillful, you know, I'll go so far, but don't go very far. Climbing a mountain, okay. You've got some attention, you've got skill, some skill, but then you've got to get down on the ground again to get bored. Got to climb another one, you yeah. So how far did that go? So concentration in this sense is to be wisely stewarded to, well, it's, develop that more upon this internal quality of intentionality and 
the feeling that arises there, intention to calm, to steady, to relate, to handle. So really concentration becomes first of all a concentration of intention. Like when I say, I don't mean a fixation, but one's intention is this. And this is one of the meanings of what's called ekagata, one-pointedness, which can be literally, taken literally, like you've got to focus your mind on the head of a pin or on some tiny little point. But it doesn't necessarily mean that eka is one, agata is chief. So in other one thing becomes the, the thing, the main thing, the priority. Everything comes into the one thing. And the one thing, most useful one thing is one's intention, is one-pointed. Yeah, like, you know, just steady, calm, soothe, ease, focus, you know, it all comes down to that. And that's really the process of Vitaka Vichara, which, you know, and gathering, absorbing to enter a, a samasamadhi. But so, but concentration in this sutta is seen as an as a essential natural feature of the mind. We're always concentrating. The problem is it's not always skillful, or it's sometimes of not much use. You're concentrating on a chess game, really concentrated. The rest of the world disappears. Okay, so you win or you lose, it's over, so <laughs> you know, how far did that go? Maybe it could it learn, you learn how to concentrate, but so mm-hmm. therefore mm-hmm. mindfulness exercises authority and this is a real turning point in this particular transmission by framing up what is useful what is skillful, what's profitable, what leads to the longest long-term welfare, yeah. then with their authority. That's a powerful word. So I'm not going to bother with this, I'm not going to do that, I've had enough of this, this doesn't go there, this goes there. So mindfulness, we frame up something useful. Could be generation of goodwill, could be mindfulness of breathing, could be any number of Potential meditation themes, buddho, people use that, mantras use that, walking up and down use that. Well, you frame up something which is generally of the nature to deepen and allow an opening into the nature of experience. Mm. And we begin to see even more than just getting some calm and tranquility, which is certainly of some good long-term benefit, but still not really that long-term. How long are you going to be tranquil and calm? You know, how many times can you be tranquil and calm? What happens when the baby cries or the milk boils over? You can be tranquil and calm, you know? So, yeah, it's a, it's a long-term, but really not ultimate. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, okay, that, that's good. When is the chance? Why not do that? Absolutely. Even more important is the wisdom to see, yeah, this goes so far, but mm, you can't get, essentially, you know, can't get much further than that. Mm. And then the turnover is real, the next big turn, which has been operating all the time, is wisdom. Mm. Wisdom supervises. Checks things out, causes, results. It's been op- it should be operating all the time, but now it set, checks things out even more fully. Mm-hmm. This state I'm experiencing arose because of conditions and causes. When those conditions and causes aren't there, it won't be here. Uh-huh. This state of uh, calm and absorption, skillful, useful, praiseworthy, arose because these causes and conditions were in place, my body was reasonably healthy, I had a chance to maintain noble silence, Uh, I was in a setting I didn't have to manage anything or deal with anything, nobody was bothering me, stuff, da 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 da. 
therefore. Okay, take those causes and conditions away. What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> yes, this was good. Yes, this was worthwhile, but that's as far as it goes. Uh, and then the turning is often phrased insight, looking into what is the nature of Dhammas? What is their core? What is their essential quality? Hmm? Hmm. Well, for a start, they rise and pass. Isn't that the case? Slowly. Maybe some don't, but we'll get back to that. Hmm. Even one's compulsive habits. Wing, there we go again. There for an hour, coming out, change. Arise and pass, that's their nature. Do they belong to anybody? They create a person, but can a person manage them? Stop them? Control them? Make them happen? Hmm, no. Causes and conditions make them happen. The person, if they're wise, maybe ought to juggle a few causes and conditions to make some happen, but quite a few dhammas are not under one's control. Health, vitality, um, uh, some emotional states sometimes are not under one's say. And they're, they're not self. We recognize they they're arise in all people. This gives rise to qualities of dispassion. It's like this. And that quality of dispassion begins to liberate. It means it's no longer the pressure to have, to own, because nothing can be had, nothing can be owned. And it's that insight, these insights are cumulative. The effect of viveka, viraga, dispassion, it's like this now. So, because of that, so, <laughs> things terminate. They start stopping because there isn't a running on. So we begin to recognize dhammas also like that. They have the nature to cease. Mm-hmm. So something that's of that nature, how much substance does it really have? Mm-hmm. It has the potential to move, but if you don't move around it, what is it? If there's no movement around, around a Dhamma, what is it? It becomes increasingly empty, increasingly ephemeral, increasingly non, non-heating, non-generative, and it <coughs> fades. And through that process, it comes to be that the quality of dispassion and the wisdom begin to be ingrained in the mind, and it doesn't look for passion, because it realizes the power and the potential of of dispassion. This becomes much more instinctive rather than considered. You say, oh, no, no. And so um, this leads to the destruction of craving, which is always an exciting experience. When I say exciting, not necessarily pleasant, exciting, but it's a kind of violent agitation of of energy, craving. You know, craving to kill somebody, it's kind of violent agitation of energy. And, you know, craving for sense pleasures is a strong agitation of energy. Oh, you know, no, I don't want any of that. It's not even a conscious decision, just it becomes distasteful. Once you've really drunk in and absorbed the quality of dispassion. It sounds so negative, but dispassion is not not an antagonism towards passion. It's just the appreciation of the deeper, more fulfilling and more profitable experience of dispassion. It's quiet, it's suffusive, it allows things to rise and pass, it's non-reactive, it's non-judgmental, it doesn't put labels on people. It's able to encompass a whole wider range of experience than 
than passion can. You know, how much things you can get passionate about, really. A few views and opinions, yeah, get passionate about that. A few sense pleasures, get passionate about that. A bit of success, get passionate about that. Well, how long are they going to go you know, for before you get bored with them? Because <laughs> the nature of passion is like that, is because it's so it's exciting in its beginning, extremely agitating, a lot of agitated energy in its beginning. But the moment of its apparent fulfillment, it's just like a wet rag. Oh, well, I better have another one, I guess. <laughs> and after a while, you've kind of worn out that particular potential for that one, so you choose something else. Yeah. And then you begin to recognize, no, it's not the problem, it's not things in themselves. It's, it's, it's passion. It's that tanha, it's the craving, and the raga. Actually, the chitta really doesn't like it very much. When it becomes clearer, so the confused jitter that's so compressed and contracted and distorted and wound up, a bit of passion at least kind of gets it going for a while, better than just sitting there in a kind of frozen, dis- depressed state. <laughs> 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 gets the juices flowing. <laughs> but if they're, if they're actually gently suffusing, you know, I don't want to go through all that. So there's a big transformation, dispassion. Once we begin to see, and this is the core, liberation, dispassion leads to that ending of craving because we've seen the nature of dhammas. It's to be very ephemeral and even rooted in subjective positions. So, the craving breaks up, there is a sense of enjoying, the sense of, of uh, you know, liberation that's inherent in experience if, if the craving ceases. Liberation from what? From loss, from failure, from misery, from addiction, from phobias from ill will, you know. This isn't just some kind of esoteric teaching, this is dealing with very direct human realities. <laughs> so liberation, in this sense, isn't some, it's a statement about, it's always liberation from, not some theoretical cosmic experience. It means liberation from bondage, <laughs> in, in essence. Yeah. And once we've really, with dispassion, understood the nature of dhammas, then there isn't that bondage. Because nothing can be held, nothing can be owned, nothing can be possessed. And I'm not configured by them. I don't have to be configured by what happens in my mind. Which is an enormous blessing. Because normally what happens in this mind, get can get one very stirred up, one way or another, depressed, annoyed, critical, reactive. Is it lovely just to have stupid thoughts running in your mind and go, stupid thoughts are running in this mind. (laughs) So? (laughs) So, liberation, and then... uh, the merging, or deathless, the sense of, uh, you know, things f- the differentiations of dhammas. Once the essence is seen, well, they're all like that, really. Then instead of the specific, you know, outward characteristic of sights or sounds or pleasures or pains, what's focused on and it's considered a great, be a great benefit, a great fruit, is just keep focusing on the impermanence of them. Now this may, in fact, take, is a big shift, because normally what attracts us or gets us stirred up is the outward appearance of it. You know, the savour, the flavour, it's called the raga, the tint, the music of it. Yeah, raga also means music. The music of it. Yeah. 
And if you just begin to be able to incline towards the ephemeral, the transience of it, then you're seeing something that's actually of a unitary quality of all of them. So they start to merge into, and because the the raga quality is not focused upon or not inherent or not given much attention, what's going to rise up? Where does the interest lie? Because there's no specific thing to focus on because anything that happens is of the same characteristic. So the, the sense of chanda, the motivation to this one rather than that one, starts to fade and there's this merging into the undifferentiated nature of experience. It's all of that quality. It's all just wellings and movings. And, you know, the abandonment of a, taking a stand on any of it, uh, termination, consummation, nibbana. Some of this is maybe just something to put on the shelf for a while. Uh huh. Sounds interesting. Chanda's there. Hmm. What's the what I'm saying at this time? You know, there are many ways one can teach or present or inquire, but dhammas, feeling, and one of the essential tools here is dhamma vijaya, investigation of dhammas. Yeah. And if dhammas converge upon feeling, if that's the gate through which they have to pass, then surely this is the best place to pope, put your dhamma vijaya on what's really happening now. Because yeah, they're all going to come through that gate. This is where they're going to burst, where the reactions are going to occur at the point of the feeling. This is where the springboard is. So if one's dhamma vijaya is right there, at the point of where feeling happens, then, aha, uh-huh, there's a possibility that the, uh, instead of those compulsive trajectories that sprout from feeling, there could be a careful custodianship of response that leads in a long for one's long-term welfare. The careful custodianship of response. And what is that? Widen, soften. Yeah. Mm. Notice where it goes. Bear in mind, you know, saturate one's intentionality with the qualities of kindness, goodwill, gladness, equanimity. Hmm? So that that which arises can be carefully handled and instead of going down the reactive channel, held carefully, Mm, surveyed and cease uh, into and the heart widens, softens, become more confident, more open each time there's increasing liberation from that now feeling and of course this is the simple straightforward uh, route but you would recognize that this is you know somewhat muddied by our by the karma or the vipaka results or the compactions or the afflictions that have infected uh, chittas mm. and so mm, sometimes people even don't know what the feeling is or there's a confusion between feeling and emotion although the two are linked. So feeling purely in the Buddhist sense means just the quality of agreeable or disagreeable. Not even necessarily acute misery or profound excitement, but just, well, if this went on a little longer, I'd be getting feeling like, yes, it'd be nice when this finished. That's called disagreeable. (laughs) And if, oh, I hope we can stay with this, that's called agreeable. But naturally, with a lot of moderate feeling, you know, the person pack can get on top of that and say, oh, well, it doesn't matter, I can bear with this for a while. Or, you know, 
oh, it doesn't matter if it leaves, I'm okay with that. Because of course, yeah, as social human beings, we can do that. We can bear with a bit of discomfort. We can allow pleasant stuff to pass, and oh, it doesn't matter, I'll get another one. You know, But we're not looking at this from a personal point of view, but really trying to penetrate through the person personal management system, just blamelessly, honestly, know how it is. And recognize, if all dhammas converge on feeling, this means that which arises from sense contact, that which arises from sights, sounds, touches, that which, and even more potently, that which arises from mind contact, from mental cognition, which, as we all know, is extremely potent and extremely habituated and gets very stuck and causes all kinds of mayhem and uh, for oneself and others. Because that feeling triggers particular patterns, programs, sankharas. And this triggering called papancha on the, on the mental level means that something which is really just an idea or an imagination or an inference or a memory or an expectation has a powerful, solid reality that can seize us and grip us and shove us and batter us. <laughs> and so the fact it begins to compact your body, you know, it's not just uh, ephemeral. When it's acted upon, it becomes extremely um, effective. Tension, pressure, yeah. ungroundedness, yeah. restlessness. You know, these are not just ideas, they are felt experiences. And then a constant trying to hold it all together and manage and cope. That piece of ideology which infects our minds. Another theory, another piece of cognitive information that requires a gripping reality called the inner tyrant. You've got to manage it all, control it all, make it all work. Now, (laughs) or if not now, at least by this evening. (laughs) You know, that thing, even meditation. You know, it gets held through that. Where's that? Who created the scoreboard? Who put the targets up? Who gave you the grades? You did. <laughs> well, not you personally, but a sankara in your mind. Uh, you know, I told you you were a success or a failure. And probably it didn't say much about the successes. Because... Once their experience, well, so what? But the failure, the pain digs in. And you should be better. You could be better with just a little more effort. And so that that means the chanda gets excited for that, to do more, put more juice in, and the pressure builds up. So these cognitive pieces are extremely potent and we don't even really examine them we just obey or find ourselves more or less helplessly thrown because they've been obeyed so many times it becomes habitual why are they obeyed because of the fear of the disapproval of others which we imagine whether it's there or not the fear of in the future I might not be, a future we don't actually know exists, but we can we can imagine that. Yeah. A fear of not having succeeded, one's life being a waste of time. Well, where do, where what are the realistic bases upon which those assumptions are made? The disapproval of others. Okay, you try and do one thing that everybody's going to approve of. 
all the time. Not going to happen, is it? But the chances are that whatever you do, not everybody's going to disapprove of it. And perhaps the most important thing is that you don't disapprove of it because you know your intention. So you start to see, well, you know, the way out of this must be intentionality, clear intention, and that's, that's a sankara. That's a powerful one. Now noticing you know, the effects of contact impressions derived through the senses, and particularly derived through cognition, and the particular cognitions that we, we generate and hold as virtual realities that have tremendous pressure on us. What I will be, what I should be, what I could be, what other people think I am, how I match in terms of the crowd, the herd, other women, other people, whether people like me, whether she's attracted to me, whether this is the right, this, that, and the other. Who knows? How, and you know, these have to be really questioned as, is this really a value system that's going to take you to your own welfare or make you a neurotic wreck? Well, check it out. So, you know, this is again, remembering, just bearing in mind these khandhas, this is the perception aggregate, the perception of the future, the perception of others, the perception of success, the perception of the world, the perceptions of, you know, the past, the perceptions of this, that, where are they? You know, they're ghosts. And when they leap out, we run, we get spooked. The perception triggers a feeling, unpleasant feeling. Loss of ground, shaky. Grab the first thing, Sangsara Express. Always available and waiting in the station. Perception is what? in its essence. You know, you took it as a neutral object, you see something like a cushion, well, you perceive a cushion. So it's what? Purple, black, violet, brown. Mm. Does the cushion know that? Does it even know it's a cushion? (laughs) If you gave it to a, you know, a cow, what would he do with it? Eat it, probably look away, can't eat it, walk away from it. Cow doesn't know to sit on cushions. So what inherent reality has a cushion? It's purely a subjectively generated thing that comes from certain sites and associations. We've seen these things, we know what to do with them. It's constructed. A cushion is a constructed reality, constructed in our minds. Not constructed in a textile factory, but in our minds. Imagine taking a, you know, your MacBook Pro to a Amazonian tribe. What would they do with it? Give them this nice, what you think is a nice, slender, silver-gray box. And look at it. What's this thing? Open it up. Nothing inside it. Throw it away. <laughs> what is it? Hit somebody on the head with it. You know, put it in the cooking pot. What can you do with it? Useless. You know. Yeah, but uh, perception, meanings, values, inferences. How much value we give to something like gold. You know, gold, wow, solid gold. What is it? It's still a meaning, isn't it? And it's got a big price tag on it. Actually, gold's not very useful. Much less useful than iron. And totally useless compared with water, which is much more valuable than gold. But how much is an ounce of water cost? Compared with an ounce of gold. We can you eat gold, drink gold, wet, you know, how warm is it gonna keep you? Nothing. Useless stuff. People kill <laughs> for gold because of perception. You know, perception is not some kind of refined Buddhist concept. <laughs> it's a powerful reality.
and we look at the feeling it generates, whether it's stupid, whether we think, you know, we feel attracted to gold and it gives us a pleasant feeling. Well, okay, so fair enough, pleasant feeling. And then you hold the feeling. What's the best thing to do with the feeling? Get embarrassed about it, feel you shouldn't have it. Uh, try and get to the thing that's generating it, or that gold, that's pleasant, I'll get hold of a piece of gold. So what happens? Nothing. Uh, so you realize that the action, the compulsive action or feeling, whether it's to shut it down, ignore it, follow it, doesn't go very far. Best kind of way to hold it is just to hold it carefully. Ah. And it starts to open and change and dissolve. And the mind feels peaceful, open, free. Now it's particularly significant when we cultivate this with our, not with external sense objects, but with our own inner perceptions, cognitive perceptions. Mm. Success, failure, I am this, I'm not that, I never will be this. He thinks this of me, they don't like me, and so forth. My life in the future is going to be a complete mess. I'm okay on retreat once we get off here, I'm not going to go back to my old stupid habits again. Oh, was that, what feeling does that arise? Disagreeable feeling. And then trajectory, despair. So, get the feeling. Some feelings are distinctly disagreeable. There's got to be room for disagreeable feeling, because there's a lot of it. At least makes it at least a third of life is disagreeable feeling statistically, and I, I think I'd actually like to raise the number on that one. <laughs> on ordinary life, anyway, yeah, life in the world is mostly disagreeable feeling, as far as I can sense it. Hmm? The external world is mostly check it out, yeah. and the, particularly the world of the psychology is based upon you know, sense contact and social act, social stuff is mostly, as far as I can make out, disagreeable feeling. A f- you know, a sense of pressures, disagreeable. Competition, disagreeable. People being in uns- insensitive to you, disagreeable. You know, worrying about the wages, disagreeable. Concerned how long you're gonna keep working for, disagreeable. Not having to be able to take a vacation, disagreeable. <laughs> Getting in a bad mood, having an argument with somebody, disagreeable. Feeling guilty about it, disagreeable. <laughs> Wishing you were another way, disagreeable. Hoping you could be another way, disagreeable. <laughs> Expecting someone else to make you another way, disagreeable. <laughs> Craving, disagreeable. When you get right down to it, that kind of lunging and thrusting, and if only I could, isn't that, how do you feel? Oh, disagreeable feeling. Hmm? Well, even in, you know, recognizing, well, that's, yeah. And we want to certainly limit that because it gets overwhelming, it gets so pressurized for all the trajectories that disagreeable triggers. It becomes a bit calmer, but still a disagreeable feeling. Subtle disagreeable feeling. Mm. A bit cold, disagreeable feeling. Mm. Didn't like the way you looked at me, disagreeable feeling. Yogi sitting behind me breathes too loud, disagreeable feeling. Cushion's not quite plump enough, disagreeable feeling. Didn't do very well today, disagreeable feeling. Can't understand the talk, disagreeable feeling. Wish I could get enlightened, disagreeable feeling. (laughs) Thinking, well, maybe this retreat didn't work out, but next year I'll do something else, disagreeable feeling. (laughs) Check it out. And an opening to 
so it's got to be there. It's not your fault. It's your responsibility to stop, you know, check it out. Dhamma Vijaya. How real is this? Where does it go if I react to it? Is there another way I could open to it? Soft around it. Allow it to be there. Breathe out through it. Relax in it. Let my body relax in it. Unwind those contractions in my body. Unwind. Take my shoulders down from around my ears. Let them come down three inches. Let my solar plexus loosen up. Let my jaw loosen up. Let my forehead be lighter. Let my attitudes be less intense and demanding. Loose, softer, lighter, looser. Disagreeable feeling is held. Not allowed to pass. Now why I've been recommending using somatic practices to handle this is because the psychological reactions are strong often and the results of these sankharas tend to embed the the, the, uh, sankharas get embedded in the tissues as I've explained, you know, pressures tighten up and your body just seizes up around it doing that for 20 years your body actually gets deformed by it hopefully not, you know, long term but certainly to its extent deformed you know, you can't breathe properly breathing is not a comfortable experience sometimes you can't hardly even find your body find where your legs or your feet are it just doesn't go down there you know there's just this buzzing up in your head and some unknown territory underneath it or there's a contraction around your chest so we start doing somatic practices just to open up to be able to you know receive more fully and then you begin to notice with this quality what parts light up or even noticing that's funny my chest this season what's happening disagreeable feeling it may be just the sound of the fire or the door banging nobody's fault let it just cause that okay Hmm. so it's not apportioning blame or saying it shouldn't be here but recognize the somatic response to feeling and you've got a way of keeping it quite clean blameless body doesn't blame doesn't create these projections so you own it that door banging I get this tension in my throat interesting is it possible just to shift your attention to the in your throat go down your body from the throat holding that place in your throat opening down to your chest to the place where it's not reacting and hold it in that wide space allowing the energy to drain from that contracted area into something more spacious oh. then the door's banging but it's not doing the same thing anymore and we do this over and over again till the body knows how to do it by itself and the jitta understands it no, need no longer be frightened of unpleasant feeling and then this begins to pull the plug on the reactivity around unpleasant feeling you know, it doesn't bother so hmm. Now, it may be the case that one's whole system is so contracted you barely really feel very much, apart from an intense thinking mind takes over. You don't really know what the feeling is. Just intense thinking mind. So, okay, how does that feel? Unpleasant feeling. Disagreeable feeling. Well, try to feel it in your skin, in your pulses, in your nerve endings. Yeah. Give yourself more time, more space, open the space around your skin. 
begin to cultivate thoughts that don't create that same pressure. Instead of do it, do it, do it, be it, be it, be it. Be more loving with that. And you can use skillful means, like I often, well, less nowadays, but just regard my thinking mind as someone with dementia. (laughs) (laughs) Getting wound up about things that don't exist. They're just fantasies in my mind. This is dementia. So a person dementia treated with some sympathy. So demented person, you say, okay, demented person, this is just get on your feet now. I'm going to walk over here. Yes, of course. Yes, it's still 1942. Yes, and the, yes, yes, we know that. And it's yes, yes, she did that ten years ago. Oh yes, oh yes. They're just wanting you sit down here for a while. I'll get you a cup of tea. You know, like really soft because these demented <laughs> beings are highly reactive. You don't want to spook them with getting heavy. So listening to your thoughts like. Oh, so we're dementia, poor soul. How do you handle it? Don't try and convince her another way. That just gets her more agitated. Just say, oh, yes. Oh, really? Monsters <laughs> under the bed, eh? Oh, yes. <laughs> Let's not worry about it. Come over here and sit down on this little cushion of loving kindness. <laughs> slowly, you know, talk to it slowly. There has to be this relationship yeah. And same with your body, you know, rather than relax, will you? Just oh, all the time in the world to be totally tense, how lovely. You know? <laughs> and how far does it go? How curious. Yeah. Oh, my knees aren't tense. Oh, it's only my throat, head, chest, belly, shoulders, back, guts. <laughs> but my knees are doing fine. You know, oh, <laughs> it's widening. And, you know, rather than that frenzy of trying to get yourself sorted out. So there's something about, you know, a relationship which is loving, trusting and allowing. And then it's the beneficial. We, then we investigate. What is this one trying to say? It's trying to say, pressure, 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 pressure. It's trying to say, fear, fear, fear. Yeah. And then what do you do with that? Okay all the time in the world, listen, open, resonate qualities of goodwill and recognize, you, you, you know, that. You begin to see it shift, mm. open. Where else in the body is there for this painful feeling to go? You welcome it rather than resist it. So, oh, painful feeling in my shoulder, could you, could you travel all the way down to my belly? All the room in the world down there. Could you go into my breath? Oh, plenty of room in there. Get, get a, have a relax in my breath, will you? you know, starts to drain from the frenzy and the fury. Keep checking out. Question, because your body is, a, is, an, is an accurate map of sankharas. So check it out. Yeah. And actually it's in our language, isn't it? You say, you know, well, you know, I've got so much it's on my back. He's on my back. He's a pain in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> when I saw her, my face lit up. You don't see when I saw her, my knees lit up. <laughs> well, mine never light up. Why is that? Because the energy rushes there, doesn't it? Your gladness. Yeah. Yeah. When you feel depressed, do you feel depressed in your shins? My shins are really depressed. <laughs> no, it sinks. It's a sinking down through the chest, the freezing, a cold, and a tight, flat quality in the belly, isn't it? When you feel a- agitation, you say, my elbows are agitated. No, it's generally a kind of rushing up through the sides of the body, up the neck, into the head, and buzz, buzz, buzz. So you even track these with a sense of Dhamma Vijaya, curiosity, and then widening, include the whole body, breathing in, breathing out, sensing the space. How are things affecting you? Perceptions of yourself, what happens? Future, what happens? Hmm? So you start to develop a relationship with this Sankara, 
through understanding the feeling that they spring from and the birthplace of feeling and the fascination with it and the belief in it as being something that must, you have to obey. Well, it happens, but instead of just blindly obeying it, wouldn't be wiser just to mindful, honest, true, disagreeable feeling, whether I should or shouldn't, pleasant feeling, whether I should or shouldn't. That's secondary, soften, widen. Feeling is a feeling. So, and the eternal, timeless, boundless possibility of receiving feeling and the joy that it gives you, the ease that it gives you, just to handle one unpleasant feeling, open to it, widen into it, allow it to pass. The tremendous benefit that gives you confidence, clarity, composure, equanimity, ease, and insight. Just to open to unpleasant feeling uh, as it happens. And your body knows that, begins to relax into that. So it's, this is deeply for one's welfare. Long term, leads to skillful states, leads to immediate peace and happiness, leads to long-term understanding, leads to Nibbāna. This is why we should cultivate mindfulness of feeling. Dhamma-vijaya is our support and tool to do so. Where does it arise from? Where does it touch? What's its nature? Anyone?